Welcome to the College Commons Podcast, passionate perspectives from Judaism's leading thinkers, brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, Dean of HUC's Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles, and your host. You're listening to a special episode recorded at the URJ Biennial in December of 2019. Welcome to this episode of the College Commons Podcast. We're going to have a conversation with Rabbi Mike Urim, who is the Executive Director at Penn Hillel and the author of the best-selling book, Next Generation Judaism, How College Students in Hillel Can Help Reinvent Jewish Organizations, which won the National Jewish Book Award in 2016. He spent time in all of the different denominations and seeks to break down the boundaries that prevent people from having full self-actualized Jewish identities. Rabbi Mike Urim, thanks for joining us on the call. Thank you so much. Great to be here. In your book, Next Generation Judaism, you argue for, uh, if if it's a fair encapsulation, you argue for higher impact on a smaller scale. You talk about Shabbat dinner, relationships, etc. It's the the unprogrammed program uh, or strategy, so to speak. We in the organized Jewish world are generally primed pretty well uh, to hear the power of this tactic. It's something we can connect with. But I want to ask you about the liabilities or limits or vulnerabilities of this tactic. Yeah. Everything's a cost-benefit. Yeah, so I think um, since the book came out and I've spoken to people around the country, I actually feel like some of the ideas have become nuanced in the way they should have been in the initial book. So first of all, I, don't, I actually don't think the idea is sm- higher impact in a smaller scale. Okay, uh, thanks for the question. Um, but, but the way that I've started to say this to folks now is that um, the whole way that identity is formed and the way that people relate to religion and institutions and community is changing, mostly driven probably by technology, but that we live in a world increasingly that's focused on customization. People are doing things in micro trends. Like, for example, the kind of classic example is that when I Love Lucy was on TV in the, in the 50s, over 74% of Americans watched the exact same show at the same moment. And then you look at even something like Game of Thrones, it only gets 3% of the American population for the final episode, which is kind of much higher than average weekly viewing. So there's just been this huge shift. And uh, it's really interesting. Also, millennials are the least trustful generation in the history of Pew Research. So if you ask people in the greatest generation, generally speaking, can you trust people? About 45% of them agreed. And for millennials, it's 18%. And they don't mean that they're going to get mugged. It means that they don't trust institutions and organizations and macro community to get them. And yet almost every instance of organized Jewish community is built on an operating system that is totally designed for macro community, for affiliations, for kind of um, a one size fits all approach. I want to just say one other piece of introduction, which is whenever I say one size fits all, synagogue leaders tend to say, no, we're not like that. We've got the sisterhood and the brotherhood and we've right, got right, right. a yoga service and a, and, a, and a library service. But when you start to think about how those things are engineered, it's the same group of leaders trying to reach out to the same populations and markets and to get them to show up in the same space. So there's a lot of, a lot of entry points, but ultimately it's the same product. And so what I'm arguing for is that in addition to these macro communities and the kind of classic programming model, that there has to be another strategy for all of the people who aren't going to show up. Right. And they're, I, they're the golden demographic that everyone wants to reach and correct. no one knows how. And, right. and I think the, the other piece that I've learned that's also not in the book is um, 
whenever I would try to, with all the nuance I possibly could explain this, I think people, what they still heard is you're just saying, take people out of the building and out of the synagogue or out of the Hillel and sticking them in small Shabbat dinners. And that was never really... So I apologize for contributing to the, no, mis- no, to it, the oversimplification. I, or it's something that's maybe off in the book, right? But what I, what I started to realize is the, 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 the way to hit this home is to think about two important holidays in the Jewish calendar. And we both have Yom Kippur and, we've, and we have uh, Passover and Pesach. And on Yom Kippur, it's all about macro community. If you think of like a typical Yom right. Kippur service, what gets you in is a ticket, a membership. You heard the rabbi, the cantor is amazing. Your friends belong there. It's all institutional relationships. Even Rosh Hashanah dinner, most, <clears throat> most people don't grow up with memories of Rosh Hashanah Correct. dinner. But, but I think that most of what we do in the organized Jewish world, whether it's education or youth group programming or Hillel programming, runs on this Yom Kippur paradigm, which right. is a few people come up with a great idea. They broadcast that and they try to get as many people as they can in the room. Again, that's very much that macro community model. But the other thing we have is Seder. And we know um, that you can have Seder. Everyone can do it for themselves. There's no institutional coordination. And yet you feel like you're part of something larger. And so just like we have both of those modalities in the calendar, I think organizationally we should have both of those modalities. And yet almost everything, right, that synagogues, federations, JCCs do is still on the Yom Kippur paradigm, if that makes sense, right? What gets you into a Seder? A friend invites you. The gap between leader and participant is much more narrow, right? right? It's egalitarian. across the table. Totally customizable. And so I I think in in a healthier version of American Judaism, you would have organizations that would have real strategies, both to grow the number of people coming to the building, coming to services. For a synagogue, I I would give this example. Could you develop a strategic plan where you're going to grow the number of people who come on Friday night by 30%, but also have a strategy to grow the number of people lighting Shabbat candles with their family by, by 30%? Right. right. Like Generally speaking, when we want to keep a synagogue strong, we only count what happens in the building, but that's not the full totality of what Jewish life could be. Got it. And so when I asked the question, which posed it as liabilities or vulnerabilities on the one hand and benefits on the other, you're saying you're not, you, you want the balance in the first place. You, you recognize yeah. that there are limits to the Pesach Seder. That's why we have Yom Kippur, which you also want us to have. And, Correct. Yeah, I hear you. But, but I also think, I mean, there's layers to that if we want to dig into it. Like, for example, we know that there are a lot, I mean, there's some Seders that are amazing. There's some Seders that are like, they try to kill us. They, they yeah, didn't, right. we, we survive, let's eat, right? It's, and you lose quality control in that way. But what I've also seen happen on campus when we do this, for example, if you, if you send the rabbi out to the fraternity house to do a really cool, you know, Torah, the Torah of hooking up with a bunch of like cool fraternity guys, it can be amazing. And, and the rabbi can bring all this lived wisdom and textual stuff. But the whole fraternity is then facing the rabbi and talking to, to him or her. Effectively reproducing a satellite. Right. And when you take the rabbi out, ironically... Maybe there'll be less text, right? But all of a sudden, this community of people is, is engaging with itself. And I think part of what I'm trying to push in the book is one model is a client-server model where the organization does it for you. And then the other thing is how can you unlock the power of social networks to do for themselves? And I would say there's another layer, uh, which is uh, the chronology of the life cycle, so that uh, you're going to favor one model over the other, depending on where you are in life. And when you're a, a, a pre-marriage or pre-child married, um, the, the Yom Kippur model of having a physical space that you attend or go mm. to regularly yeah. 
uh, is less attractive. But when you have kids and you need a preschool, all of a sudden that changes. And, Correct. And then you're going to, yeah. after that kid's bar bat mitzvah, then maybe you're going to recede a bit and go back to the Pesach model uh, until you want to join your uh, elders community back at the... That's, that's an, I actually hadn't thought about that insight. I mean, it's true that... But all the more so why two operating Both. systems right. allow it, exactly. it, it allows much more for the complexity of different life. But, but I think there's another layer there too, which is one of the things I'm really driving at is that there, you know, there's all of this like neuroscience and linguistic science that seems to suggest that the way that you almost can't think or conceive of something if you can't articulate it. Right. So the right. way we speak drives the way we Without think. Without the word, there is no idea. Correct. Great. Better, better said. And so I think about all of the hidden implicit messages in the language we use. And one of the things that has become clear to me is that there is a dangerous conflation between involvement, affiliation, uh, use of Jewish services like preschools or membership or whatever it is. And very quickly assuming that because someone affiliates or shows up, that we're also then doing the work of of activating their Jewish lives or making a real difference. And it's an easy uh, mistake to make. It's really hard to run a legacy Jewish organization and you don't have a ton of time. Right. But if, if you find yourself at board meetings and strategy meetings and planning meetings, and the only questions that we're asking are, how are the numbers? How many people are showing up? How do we increase the numbers? I think those are actually dangerous metrics. And so part of what I like about that foil of the Seder is like, you know, I've gone around the country and I've asked people as one of the exercises to say, like, tell me a list of like, what are the most transformative Jewish experiences you've had? Like that made you the Jew you are today. And the list is always the same. You can kind of guess, right? It's family, it's grandparents, it's some role model who took an interest, could have been a rabbi or a camp counselor who took an interest in you. It's camp, it's Israel. And that, you know, and then it's, if, if there was a death in the family and it, it could be around Avilut and mourning customs, where all of a sudden there's an activation. But what, what has never showed up in all of, I've done this 150 times, um, is someone talking about a program. I don't mean a program like I was at, I went on this trip yeah, and right, explored, you know, but a one-off right, program, a lecture, right, right, right. Uh, a youth group dance, a right, Hillel right, right. barbecue, Purim Carnival, Purim yeah. Carnival is never, and honestly, it services has never shown up either, yeah, right. except the kind of my father died and I started going to well, my bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah sometimes right. comes up, but. Um, and I think that again, it just shows like all, we're so addicted to programming and attendance and so, we don't even realize that we think that because the room is full, we've succeeded, but we may not have. We, and, and ironically, I always play this game, like imagine you could get Gal Gadot to come or whoever the biggest Jewish star yeah, of the yeah. moment. So you bring that person to whatever community, you get 20,000 people to show up to hear this. And you think this is the biggest success we've ever had. And I actually, my theory is that, that the vast majority of newcomers that you would get in that moment, they might like Gal Gadot. They might feel like, wow, this reinforces the fact that Judaism has nothing to say about my life because she has nothing to say about Judaism, right? Right. But, but more than that, they show up and it's like, it's all the same clickiness. It's all the same right, right. inside or outside. Oh and it God. reinforces, right? And so that's also this power of like, how do you focus on experience, impact, Jewish growth as opposed to affiliation, numbers, attendance, program. So I am completely convinced by your argument, but I at the same time want to push back on two uh, dimensions of the what we're calling the Yom Kippur model yeah. uh, or the program model. 
to which you're, you know, offering this critique and compliment, we should say. In, in the sort of worst case scenario model where someone shows up and pays dues, but fundamentally have maybe even barren Jewish lives and, and whatever, if we're going to make a caricature. Mm-hmm. I want to argue that uh, it's still a very powerful metric because uh, we can rebrand that metric as those people giving. They may not be getting. They may not actually mm. be, but they're guaranteeing it for you and me. Yeah. And that's an act of generosity. It's an act of tzedakah, and it's an act of of uh, it's a mitzvah. And they, you mean t- they're giving because even if they don't love it, they're they're showing up to be part of a community to and, be and to answer amen to someone who's saying mourners Scottish. Yeah, yeah, in a minionish <clears throat> kind of way. But more than that, there's real practical benefit there. They are paying the dues that keep right. the roof over the head for the, for everyone else. And 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 uh, in a world, by the way, where most people pay less than their their uh, their freight, so to speak, right. that's. That's Sadaka. That's I totally agree with you. And it's such an important point. And then there's also part of me that wants to say, um, if we weren't so addicted to it, if it wasn't already, in other words, even great Hillels and great synagogues and great JCC, they, I mean, I, I run an organization now. We have to keep the lights on. It is too often that the, that the only question I have time to think of is how many people showed up. Yes. And, and, how, and, and for us, it's not membership, but it's fundraising, right? But it's, we're, we're, the real way I would love to see this happen, sorry, and I, and I think that there, it also, in some ways it's generous and it's an important tzedakah and it's a mitzvah. And in other ways, um, I think that we are just shirking our responsibility, which is, in engagement, which is this methodology that we talk about in its purest form would say, great, you remember, that's a, that is an act of generosity on your part. Now, what we owe you is to seek you out and to find out what inspires you, what pisses you off, what's work, like what are the questions you're asking about your life? What are the things you're, right? How do we put you in community? How do we add rituals so that you can make sense out of, Right. And, and I think that it's, it's too easy to feel like, again, it's like, well, we have all these members. We want to get them more involved. What's involvement? We got the softball team and we got the sisterhood and the gift show. And everyone's thinking about, well, how do we fill up these boxes I as opposed it. to like, how do we help people live more transformed lives? And, and the thing is, it's a paragraph, right? All the people who are making those mistakes, myself included, the way it goes, the topic sentences, what are we doing about membership? And down in the paragraph, it's because we know that membership leads to connectivity, which leads to a, a softening of the loneliness in our life, right? But I just, what I want to do is I want to invert the values pyramid. The metric I would like is like, how do you grow membership? How many people came to services? And then how do you start to, in a real way, both have a strategy to follow up with people so that they, they are growing, that they're deepening? And the second metric is, how do you measure the work? beyond memberships up or down or the room look packed or high holidays were smaller this year than I've ever seen. And, and if, if the vast majority of really good congregations don't have an immediate answer to that question, it feels to me like that's a blind spot. And, you know, part of what makes Hillel innovative is that we have these like evaporating organizations. We don't get to work with people for their life. Right. Every two and a half years, the whole thing falls apart and you could have the most amazing thing and then they graduate and it's over, right? right? And so in place of building institutions, we have to do something else. And I think we got very stuck on meaning, but there were these great researchers and they came up with this, this metric, um, which is 
they did like about a thousand interviews with people. And what they found that there were four components to transformative Jewish experiences. And the four components were, it creates a positive Jewish memory where you carry, you know, like Story. I didn't always love uh, high holidays, but I remember the rabbi used to tell these stories, right. And it becomes part of your DNA and identity. Um, it increases Jewish self-confidence, right. There's a massive uh, epidemic of feeling inauthentic and in Jews in right. honestly in every denomination, um, so it increases Jewish self-confidence, increases Jewish knowledge, gives you more tools to use Judaism to build a good life. And then this is also an essential one. It, can, it increases connectedness to other Jews. Yes. So again, you have the, the largest uh, uh, attendance at high holidays ever, but everyone shows up in little groups of two, three, or four. They talk to the three other families they, they know and they know. leave. Yeah. It's not a failure. It's just a missed opportunity, right? You, you hit the metric of getting everyone to be in a room together, which is powerful, but there's more we could do. So, all right, it would be difficult to disagree with you. I, I, and I certainly don't want to. I'm, I'm compelled and moved. I get it. But I'm worried about your first question, yeah. which is how do you do the work of actually helping people get to that place? Mm-hmm. And that's where I want to push back mm-hmm. harder. Because how do you do it? I'll tell you how you do it. Yeah. You do it by having enough professionals to spend the time to do it. And how do you pay for those professionals? Right. By getting those people to pay the dues to show. And so... Yeah. Um, so, Can you play with that for a little bit? Oh, you may finish your point, but let's play with it so, for a little but bit. But that's why I want to recast the positivity of yeah. the old model. And just as you generously and creatively, as opposed to merely throwing the baby out with the bathwater, yeah. are saying, I don't want to get rid of young people. I just want to also inflict it with Pesach. I, too, want to push back on you to say, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to be quite as uh, negatively uh, intoned yeah. for the membership model. So... A, I think you're, you're right. I have this tendency sometimes because I'm trying so hard to like uh, shift, the shift the conversation. I overdo it on the kind of Seder model. But there there is one place where I want to be negative, not because I'm happy to be negative, but because I think it's, it is a truism. It may change if social dynamic. I think that's the rise in, in the kind of anti-Semitism we're seeing is going to have an effect on this conversation. Like this, the, this conversation is more cohesive in 2016 than it is in, in 2019. But the one place where I think uh, I'm really on a safe place is that while the Yom Kippur paradigm and the Pesach paradigm are both essential and both need to be amplified, um, the old model, as you called it, right, the Yom Kippur paradigm is going to be increasingly hard to fund. And it's not because I don't like membership. I actually, there's a, one of the chapters in the book says these three different um, models of community. And I used to teach it in this way where like the club model that had insiders and outsiders and boundaries was bad. And then I realized that's not at all how I feel. The club model is amazing because by having boundaries and it means you can actually belong. Right. 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 The, what's dangerous is when we believe that the club model can work for everybody as opposed to understanding the whole purpose yes. of a club agreed. is its niche. Yes, agreed. But no matter what we want to say philosophically, unless there's a radical change in the way that identity and, and, and consumerism function, technology functions, membership models, the way they're currently structured, are going to be increased. There, there is going to be a shrinking group of people in America who are willing to pay for it. And so here, here's the point I want to make. Yes. That, the business, the, there's not a single synagogue in America where the mission statement of Congregation Ne'er Tamid is, we will work to sustain Congregation Ne'er Tamid. Every mission statement of every Jewish organization that has one that I found 
it's always, usually, I think Jews are pyromaniacs. There's a lot of fire imagery of kindling and sparks, and, <laughs> right? <laughs> there's tikkun olam, there's prayer, there's God, there's community, there's Torah. No one says sustain, right? There's like an old joke, Woody Allen used to say this old joke that was, that for Jews, swimming is not drowning. <laughs> That's not enough, right? And so the essence of what we're trying to sell in the world is Ju- the technology of Judaism to make our lives, our relationships, and our world better, not to serve to keep our organizations alive, and so the the analogy that I always use um, is Kodak invents digital photography. I think in the early seventies, and but all the corporate executives they they get tricked into thinking that their business is selling paper and film and chemicals, and then they actually there's research shows they were they knew the market was shrinking, the people didn't want to buy film and paper and chemicals. And so they tried new innovations and cool brands to get the young people to buy the film. And meanwhile, all these teenagers with flip phones are starting to like are starting to kill photography because what they want is they want it to be instantaneous. They want it to be able to share it. They don't want to have to rely on their parents to drive them to the photo mat where there's some weird guy looking right. at their photos. But the point is, Kodak's business wasn't paper and film and chemicals. Kodak's business was memories. memories. Right, Kodak moment, preserving memories, sharing memories, bringing people together, and they couldn't recognize it. And so I think the the fight to hold on—I'm not against membership, but the fight to hold on to it sometimes rings to me like the fight to get the young people to understand how good the paper and chemicals right, are. Right, right, right. And I think our business is Judaism, not membership. And the tri- this this is something we've done in real life at Penn Hillel, but by playing this game of we don't care about who comes to Hillel, it, the irony is that by not focusing on the institutional survival and doing stuff that makes inspires people and changes their lives and puts people in real community, they want to be part of an ongoing thing. And they, I mean, we, we always like to say, it's like of all the students we involve through our shadow brand called JRP without ever mentioning the H word Hillel, 30% of them became leaders in Hillel. And so many of those alumni are giving back to Hillel. And the, the key is right. Is not to figure out how to hold on to it, but how do you monetize the thing that matters most, which is Judaism? And just like people, Instagram and Apple has figured out how to monetize photography. And, you know, you think about the CD business, the record business gone. Right. They thought it was going to be the end. But now through streaming and, and downloads on iTunes, there's a new way. It's about music. It's not about CDs. I think there are ways to monetize deep Jewish experiences that sustain institutions and professionals, but it doesn't have to be just membership. One of the big flips that I didn't write in the book that I wish I had is one of the key, you know, one of the flips I already mentioned to you is like inverting the values pyramid. But one of them is also how do you supplement what is a receiving, everything we do almost as a receiving model. How do we come up with great things to get people to show up and, and to receive what we can offer? How do we supplement that with a seeking model that goes out and says, we are going to bring you Judaism wherever you live, work and play. We're going to, you think, you know, you go out, if you talk to what we call engagement Jews and you say like, what can we do? Like, what would make you interested in our movement and our synagogue? And then I'm good. I'm good. Like, I'm really proud to be Jewish. I have great memories. I, I still go home to my grandparents for Seder. But if you, if you ask a different question, not asking what can we do for you, but to really get at the gate, like what, like what's your story? Like what inspires you? And like on a gut level, all of this stuff starts coming out. And people, all the research shows also like American Jews by and large are really proud to be Jewish. There's a default belief that Judaism is awesome and right, valuable. Right. 
they want more. They just don't want to join our clubs. So what if there was a way to activate people Jewishly where, where it was about Judaism and not about club membership? And then and then the club benefits. Ultimately, the club would benefit, right? Right, right. The club would, yeah. 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 There's a way to do it. We I, just have to be bold and create and, and to be willing to experiment without knowing the answer. Before we return to the podcast, we want to let you know about digital learning on the College Commons platform. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, check out the online courses at collegecommons.huc.edu for in-depth learning, digital syllabi, assignments, inspiration for teaching, and one of our most influential courses called Making Prayer Real. Subscribe with your synagogue for all this and more. Just click sign up at collegecommons.huc.edu. Oh, and one more thing. Help us out and rate us on iTunes. But whatever you do, do not give us five stars. Unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. I get it. Uh, Yeah, let's invert the values. Let's invert the stated values. And once we invert them, make them our real values. The values as currently written are not our real values. I don't think Jews are actually prisoners to, to the membership model. I think... We, you're right. The critique is right. We should do better and all that. But I don't, I don't actually think that if you talk to Jews and synagogues, no matter what their mission statement says, you don't have to work hard to get them to admit that membership in and of itself is not the goal. So I often say when I'm doing workshops or speaking that in my day job, I know how complicated it is and how nuanced it is. And it's hard. And we don't live up to half the stuff that right. I... But, but my job is to provoke here, I think. And, and the, the, the very first piece of this book was actually some scholarship that I discovered at Northwestern when I was a JCSE fellow, which was like an outreach fellow back in the 90s. And there were two scholars at Northwestern that showed on a whole bunch of levels, um, they were working in the inner city, but they found that if you begin with deficiencies and what's wrong, and you map out a community, you know, for example, in a Jewish community, it would you know, say there's assimilation or there's apathy or there's unaffiliation, there's ignorance. Um, and then the community then tries to respond in a value-based way that it, first of all, it magnifies politics in the organization. Because it, it, once you're in a deficiency mindset, then it's like you need, a, it's zero-sum thing. There's one answer, right? And then what's really interesting is like, then the thinking often becomes the answer to every problem is a program. That's their language. And then the value of the organization is these people couldn't do it without us. Right. And right. to raise money, you have to every year talk about how bad it is and if it wasn't for us. And then people internalize that deficiency map. And they and what, what they showed, what's really interesting, is that it then breaks the bonds of community. Yeah. And instead of relating to each other, they relate to the institution and become or the passive. Pro- or the problem of the institution. Right? Yeah. yeah. And just by flipping it to mapping out the assets, it, and so I think that there, there is power in being disciplined and forcing people to say, stop talking about the problems the way we it. always talk about them. The topic sentence has to be, our business is changing people's lives. Membership is, an, is, a, is a nice accidental outcome. And we will do it. And I think it, it matters. No, right? I get it. I, right? I, I, I'm with you. I, uh... can I, I would love to get your take on one other. Can I ask yeah. you a question about it? Yeah, you can ask So me. I make this contention in the book that, that we need new language to describe Jews. And I'm wondering if you ever came across... All the time. There is no noun in the English language that represents the category into which Judaism mm-hmm. belongs. There just isn't. We are not a religion. 
You can't call us an ethnicity. You can't call us a nation. You can't call us a territory. But we're all of those things, undeniably, by any intellectually honest assessment, we're all of those things. The only term in any language is Israel. Mm. There just is no other word that captures the, uh, not merely the inextricability, but more importantly, the multifacetedness of the unity of what it is to, uh, what, what Jewishness is. Yeah. And, and it has the added advantage of, of reminding us that Israel is both a land and a people and a f- patriarch. And, and that, um, that begins to, in its, in just in the word, to, to dimensionalize the thing along contours that are faithful to our category, which isn't otherwise represented. Hmm. You just did an, a totally amazing thing, right? which is in, tr- in attempting to describe Jewish identity, you offered a beautiful, complex, nuanced, um, descript- both description of how impossible it is to describe and then an attempt to describe it. And then now let's contrast that with the colloquial ways that people define themselves and the way that organizations talk about Jews. I would say in my own experience that 70, 80, 90% of the time where I've been in any meeting of the organized Jewish community, that wasn't the conversation. It wasn't even close to the conversation. The conversation was affiliated, unaffiliated, involved, uninvolved, knowledgeable, not knowledgeable, religious, secular, core, periphery, in, right? I think what you started to articulate is actually when a Jew wakes up, what they're thinking about, if they feel Jewish at that moment, is much closer to what you were talking about than the way that like the population study of the local community would mark right. them, which is in, out, in, binary, more, less, more, right? And so I think um, what, I, what I've also found in talking to people over the years is that everybody thinks that Chabad is the most welcoming denomination, which philosophically, it, it should be the reform movement, right? right? Well, yeah. Um, we still we still would claim and that still like plays. But why? But why? And and then I was thinking about I've had coffee conversations with I don't know fifteen hundred I don't know fifteen hundred two thousand college students over the years, and every reform conservative reconstructionist secular every student who identifies as Jewish but isn't Orthodox, I realized not a single one of them in all those coffee conversations ever expressed guilt about what they believe about God. They've never expressed guilt about ritual observance. The guilt always comes out. I don't go. I used to be involved. Uh, my grandmother really wants me to go. My family used to be involved in Federation. We stopped, right? It's affiliation guilt. And so you're saying don't get so stuck on the membership thing. This is a very long trip around. But part of the reason I keep attacking membership is not because I want to blow up that model, but to highlight the ways in which it's dangerous. If we spend our time as demographers, as social scientists, as community leaders, as lay leaders, focused on your affiliated, your not affiliated, your core, your periphery, and we measure everyone in a binary way, there, there is a certain violence, and inevitably the way we talk about it is going to be internalized. And, I and agree. So, I hear you. Again, I, I don't think that the membership model should go away, but I think that we all need to kind of like, with a, with a smile on our faces, play a game of like, what happens if we pretended... Like it didn't exist. What happens if we pretended institutions didn't matter? What happens if we pretended we didn't need it? We are fundamentally in agreement. We're, we're um, and, and again, I, I find your arguments very moving. And, and, and the flipping is what you're aiming for it to be, which is constructively provocative. I just feel like, fine, let's take those sociologists at their word. Let's not focus on the negative. 
And let's just do an honest assessment of what are the strengths we should be leveraging in one realm and then for the things that they're not strong on, let's leverage them in the other. Yeah. So for so for Kemach, for, for money to get the stuff done, let's focus on the the blandishments of membership of your capacity to help Judaism thrive by being a member, because that's beautiful and powerful and yep. true. Yep. But let's go to Pesach when it comes to a whole slew of other things that we have not as a community fully done justice to. Yeah. And and remember the positives on both. Yeah. And then pursue them vigorously as you propose. I, I, I mean that I but I think that um the re and it's funny, I, you keep saying that you you fundamentally you agree and I realize, like, I'm I'm arguing, but not against you, right? I'm, I'm arguing against a straw man of right, right. what's a gender neutral way of saying straw man? A straw person? A straw, yeah, just a, um, a scarecrow. A scare that is impressive. A scarecrow, right? So I'm arguing against the scarecrow of of this image, but I think that um, the reason why I'm trying to do it is I actually think it's a way to provide hope because yeah. when 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 I'm alone and it's been a bad semester and we're behind on fundraising and it seems to me like some core part of our program is shrinking, I, I'm i not in a mindset of expansive thinking. I'm in a mindset of, you know, self-pity. <laughs> and and I think that rabbis, for example, have inc- they have incredibly hard jobs. I mean, they're, oh my I saw this happen uh, where this young person wanted to connect with Judaism and and I actually connected them with all of these rabbis and they did not have time, not because they're bad rabbis, they don't care. They're working 75 hours a week for the, with the funerals and the bar mitzvahs, and the, right? And the one rabbi in that community that had time was like an ace rabbi. Yep. And that's real. So part of what I'm trying to do with this aggressive, very strident pushing is to say, like, even when it feels dark and even when it is really hard and there are limited resources and limited time, one of the ways that we can dig ourselves out is if you can't fix it all, what if we start with like, let's find new language, right? And the truth is, I really do actually think that by, by instead of calling Jews involved and uninvolved, if you find a language that actually describes them in affirmative terms, that starts to betray maybe what's the methodology to reach them. If we stop saying involved, but, but active, right? Or instead of saying program, we talk about engagement because a program tends to connote one-off and engagement means like you've got a plan where you're growing towards something, right? Um, I think all of a sudden new, a new sense of energy reveals itself. And um, there is often a way, I think, to, to monetize those things, right? But I, but I think it's not just about satyrs. And this is something that I think makes people really uncomfortable, right? But there's all of this stuff like from Rick Warren and Ron Wolfson talks about it and all this marketing materials. The most important thing we can have as a brand is evangelists, right? And I think about what goes on in so many synagogues or Hillel's. Or, and it's like, well, you're a Reformed Jew, I'm a Reformed Jew. We're the same. And we don't talk about it. We make all these assumptions. And I think it's dangerous, because underneath all of it, um, there is an incredible shrinkage among, among the number of Jews who are, who are active, actively using Judaism to enhance their lives. I don't mean affiliation. I mean deeper, right? And even if you're strong, even if you're the reform movement, even if you're in a Park Avenue synagogue or uh, Wilshire Boulevard synagogue, the strong institutions or Penn Hillel, you can get tricked into thinking that the vibrancy of the number of members you have or the people who show up in your building means it's working. But I actually think what we actually have to do is not get more people to show up, 
I think we actually have to make more Jews. I don't mean conversion here. I think, so part of what I talk about in the book is I offer two different ways to describe Jews, but one of them is engagement Jews and empowerment Jews. Simple version is engagement Jews are people with uh, very short institutional resumes who feel just as Jewish as we do, but don't seek out organized Jewish life. Empowerment Jews are people with long Jewish resumes, camp, youth group, bar and bat mitzvah ceremony, right? And we often think that everybody is just an empowerment Jew in waiting. Um, and it, I actually don't think it's true. I think there's like 85% of American Jews, I think, fit in the category of engagement Jews, which is they feel deeply Jewish. They're proud of it. They want to deepen that connection, but they either are actively turned off or just entirely uninterested in organized Jewish life. And that's just too many people. And what is Jewish leadership a euphemism for? It's a euphemism for making decisions, planning programs, and writing checks. Right. Right? Yeah. Being on committees, we're planning, you know, planning the gala, and write the check. What if we said that part of Jewish leadership is two additional responsibilities? You have to seek out Jews you know where you've never had a Jewish conversation and start one. And the second piece is you have to go and be a creator of Jewish life. You want to be on the board? Awesome. Minimum gift. You got to serve on a committee. You got to be at three of the four annual meetings and you have to host Shabbat dinner once a month for people who are not active otherwise in Jewish life. And, and like, that's it. Right. And you take the number of people in a five mile radius. You could imagine. And I can see this actually at Penn Hill in our data where you can see that at a certain point in time, there might have been 350 people at Shabbat dinner in Hillel. There, at that time, there were 2,500 Jews on campus. The building's packed. We're the best hill in the country. We're feeling great about ourselves. There's nowhere for anywhere to sit. 350 Jews. But when you think about it, it's 350 out of 2,500. It's a failure. So how can we develop a strategy where like friends are inviting friends so it goes to 700 people? 350 in the building, 350 in fraternities and sort right off. That, I guess, in an aggressive way is like what I, I think that we're in a moment where every synagogue, every JCC, every camp, every day school can't just stay in its lane. How can a, any Jewish organization be uh, an agent of total change and transformation for every Jew that they could possibly connect with? And, there, and there's models of this, right? Like um, feminism, it began with going and, and sitting with women right. in, consciousness in part, consciousness raising. You don't feel oppressed. We have to help you, right? right. People um, in the Federation world has figured out how to get friends to ask each other for money. That, it's way easier to say, what's your Jewish story? Then will you write it, you know, sure. than to ask for a donation. Sure. So it's hard, but I, I can imagine a Jewish future where instead of saying, how do we sustain ourselves? I can, I can imagine a Jewish future where there is growing, not only growing diversity of how we express Judaism, but there's actually factually and quantitatively more Jewish action happening in homes and synagogues, right? And inevitably, and this is the other, I mean, this is the dirty little secret, right? You get people having Shabbos dinner, you get people in more book clubs, you get people going and doing more service projects and right with Jewish friends that are going to a soup kitchen. It's not that hard to imagine that even without trying, there's going to be more affiliation. I mean, you've been trying to poke a little bit, which I appreciate. I think there's one mega weakness in the whole thing where it just doesn't, it all falls apart. And if you, I'd be happy to talk about I that. I know, no, yeah. No, you got, you got my, you got my curiosity. If you, if we did like a whole presentation about like what this looks like. So the model becomes you, instead of doing just programs, you start to do relationships and then you build cohorts of ambassadors or fellows, whatever length we call them interns sometimes, but where they do peer to peer engagement. And so it means it's like 
where you get 15 or 20 people in this demographic and 15 or 20 people in that demographic. And each of them, they don't plan mega events, but they each do their own seders, right? And so then you say, well, what does that look? What are they really doing? And then you'd hear me over and over again, I'd say the same things. Shabbat dinners, book clubs, tikkun alam projects, Passover seders, Shabbat dinner, right? I mean, and I think where it really falls apart is when it comes to prayer. And I... Uh, Prayer, especially Jewish prayer, which requires a quorum in it. A quorum, it requires, uh, whether you're renewal or reform or orthodox or conservative, it requires expertise. Um, yes. You can have an amazing conversation with Jews about Judaism without an expert there. It'll be very personal. It's harder to pray without someone who really knows how to facilitate that. And there's something underneath it also, which is all of this customization. Yeah. It, it's not good. It's not good. I mean, it's there's an existential crisis in our world that rates of right. So the idea of like, well, let's just jump on that. I, I don't mean this is an ideal form. I, well, it's right, a it's a short term right, tactic, right, right. right? But the but there there was a, a Christian thinker I heard on the radio this amazing quote. He said, "You don't leave church because you're bored. You go to church to be bored. Don't underestimate the power of institutionalized boredom." So if everything is about meaning and customization and it, it, it being deep and in your gut, that, that's a great way to turn people on to Judaism. But there is a deep religious value of this is not about you. Your job in this moment is to subjugate yourself, to sit and be one. All of the confession, all of the, do, all the prayer for high holidays is all in the plural. It's like you're supposed to make yourself small. And to submit, and then something is revealed about the human condition by through that submission. It's not our only modality, right? We're also well, no, Israel, and we right, wrestle. Right, right. No, a million. But but there are like serious ethical, spiritual, moral things that can't be done by getting what you want and by customization. That's where this stuff all falls apart, especially and, in America, and and and, and the, the autonomy promoted by this movement, the reform movement, and that has been celebrated as it. It's very, very, and to talk about submission, right. uh, Arnold Jacob Wolf, one of the great reform rabbis of the last part of the 20th century, uh, wrote an article about how you really need to understand Judaism as Islam, meaning submission. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was trying to put a fine point on it. He was a provocative yeah. writer and speaker. So, so you're right. That, and that's a hard sell. I was, I, one of the things that's great about working in Hillel is I, I, I get to work with and I get to see... Uh, the products of reform conservative orthodox in between I get to work with all these different Jews and rabbis and um, there was a, a colleague I worked with who was a very deep Jew and very pious and very orthodox all those things I mean as separately um, boxes that are checked but he said something right around the time I was listening uh, to, to a lot of kids music with, with my little kids and Rick Recht song where there's he it's the song about La Sokbudivre Torah, which is to engage in the the busyness of Torah and how it's like to be a good person, to love your neighbor. And I remember, um, no offense to Rick Rick, who's an incredible guy and a gift to to our people, but I this rabbi's words named Jonathan Shulman were in my mind, and I heard the song and I got angry. Because what I realized is like Torah what he had said is a Torah study is an avoda. You don't do it because it's fun or meaningful. You submit to it. You like, especially kind of classic Talmud study is very esoteric and can be tedious. And when I had this moment, where I realized like the way you learn to love your neighbor as yourself is not by like looking at that verse in the Torah. That's like a nice fortune cookie saying, 
the way you learn to love another is through the heart. Like it's the punish. It's, it's when you say like, I'm going to put aside what I want in this moment to do something for the larger world or the community, like study Torah or pray or right. It's the, it's delayed gratification. And by learning to delay your gratification, by learning to tamp down your own impulses for, right. Then you, that is what gives you the deep skill to love your neighbors yourself. And so, you know, so there's that, my engagement model has nothing to say about those deeper lessons, except, except maybe we're, at least we're in conversation with those engagement Jews to say that mini sermon. Right, 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 right. right. <clears throat> no, no, no. And, and, and American individualism and the modern world, and it's all, it makes all of that an uphill battle, which is one of the reasons that the Yom Kippur model is not sufficient in the first place. So, right. I mean, it, it cuts both ways in terms, you said it blows up your model. It doesn't, I mean, it blows up the other model as well. You can water down Shabbos dinner and it works, meaning you can take, and, and I remember we would do this with these interns where they'd say, like, it's not my style. Can I just do it my way? And it would just be food right? At, on Friday night at the fraternity house. There'd right. be no kiddish, no mozi, no candle. But, but they call it Shabbos dinner. And that was enough symbolically to initiate a whole set of conversations and memory sharing and, and a sense of connection. The problem is most Jews, many rabbis included, you look at the Hebrew of the Sidor, you look at the English of the Sidor, it's not easy. No. That's a hard thing. And and there, there's one other thing I think would be worth it to say, which is like, if you were to ask me, like, what's what would be a positive outcome from all of my strident arguing? Um, I actually think there's three. And I'm equally happy with any of the three of them. My goal in arguing this way is not to be right. And I actually don't think I'm right. I, I play that character in these moments. My goal is to push people to think about the same questions that we're all dealing with from a different perspective because it's the only way to move forward. And so if someone listening to this podcast, reading the book thought like this guy is full of, of hoo-ha, he knows nothing. This is the answer for my community. It would make, it would make me, it would fill me with Sipuk Nefesh with a sense of satisfaction because that's actually why you expose yourself to new ideas because you see this guy's full of it. This woman's full of it. This is the answer. I think if it concretizes what people, I knew this all along, but now it's in a package, that would be a great outcome. And I think if it were, were new for anybody, like that would be a good tool. But the whole thing I'm trying to do, and I feel like this is the gift I was given by a few amazing mentors, Jeremy Brachen, who is the Hill Director of Penn for many, many years. I, I graduated from seminary, was in this very narrow box about what Judaism should mean, what success means. And he, he just was anti-establishment and how he thought. And just a few of the right questions and I was off thinking about everything. And like, we need people to do that. And so in my, I'm stuck in a lot of ways in my own work, my own life, but I think I have a chance to kind of play this role to unstick people. And it made me think of there's this beautiful thing in the Talmud where in um, rabbis are getting sick and Rabbi Yochanan goes to visit them and heals them. And then Rabbi Yochanan gets sick. And the, the Talmud asks this amazing question, like, why couldn't Rabbi Yochanan heal himself? And the Talmud says that um, a prisoner can't free themselves from their own prison. And so like, this is it. Like we're all, each of us in our own way, like we can be brilliant in one moment and totally stuck in the other way. And, and that's, that's what each of us is doing in our lives and in our organizational leadership. And so I'm just trying to nudge for, you know, I got plenty of work to do on my own end, but just with a lot of passion and fake confidence to nudge so that maybe there's like a new crack of light is formed and, and that's the way we reinvent the world every day. Well, thank you for nudging on the College Commons podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank and you so I much. I wish you every success, and I hope our paths cross soon. 
You've been listening to the College Commons Podcast, produced and edited by Jennifer Howd, and brought to you by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. For this URJ Biennial series, special thanks to Mark Palavin, the URJ Chief Program Officer and Biennial Director, and Liz Grumbacher, Director of North American Events. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.